Well, we've all been pretty busy with the our schedules with Passover and night to be observed and unleavened bread and deleavening and some of us, you know, tearing around. This year, I I was uh, mentioning to someone, you know, it's, I'm glad it's not the days of unleavened crumbs, you know, or leaven crumbs or whatever. Sometimes we get so caught up in cleaning out a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know. It probably shouldn't be called Passover. It should be called Pass Out. <laughs> but um, I think this year more than ever we got got uh, things lined out and focused on the right things. It was interesting. Today I was driving along up to Kalamazoo and kept thinking, where's all this traffic coming from? But I was thinking about Saturday. You know, I mean, Zoom, you know, I, of course, always within the speed limit, but Zoom. Uh, <laughs> Up the uh, <clears throat> up the highway there, but uh, where'd all these trucks come from? And and then I saw a couple banks open, and I thought, well, that's interesting. More and more banks are open on Saturday, and uh, then I realized it was it was not Saturday. And of course, you know, we're out out of work, uh, off of work, off of uh, school, and so forth. And it's uh, it, uh, it's an interesting time. But you know, uh, we're like the only ones. You you drive along, and there's you know, this whole nation, and, and I, I still believe that we're descendants of ancient Israel, this whole nation at one time had all of these laws and had all of this. And why in the world are they just going about their business? Well, we've covered a great deal with the covenant. You know, their parents lost sight of it, just like you would with a, a language or, or anything else. They don't, they don't speak the language anymore. And as a result, they've lost sight of uh, the covenant. They've lost sight. God is not their God. They, they think that God is, but, uh, but he isn't. You know, right now they're they're embracing the wrong god, but even so, there is a show of uh, of religion that's going to take place in three or four days uh, on a Sunday morning. There's going to be a whole group of people. That, it's actually uh, the biggest church day of the entire year, and that is Easter Sunday. Uh, more people go to church on that day. In fact, as many religions uh, will say that you know, if you uh, if you don't go to church all year, you know, well. It's okay as long as you can make it on Easter Sunday because that's the most important time. It's from Passover, you know, you take Passover and it's very important. But it is interesting, you know, it's kind of rubbed off. Uh, there's been a substitute gone out <clears throat> from the holy days, the feast days, and all the things that they picture. There's a substitute out there now on Easter. And it's even affected some of our good friends uh, from uh, another church or another church group, if you will, where... It's even been stated in one of their publications that, uh, you know, you're encouraged to go out Sunday morning and, you know, when the sun's coming up and, and see that and think about that and so forth, which is, uh, is, is rather sad because it, it starts off rather slowly uh, and slowly things change and pretty soon you lose sight of it all and you won't, uh, you know, God doesn't want you to worship him like the other nations around do because not that he's so mad about, you know, paganism and things. I mean, paganism is wrong, but it gets you to lose sight of the real God. You know, a lot of people worship on Sunday. Sunday, they think, is the day. And there's certain scriptures sometimes they use, they try to kind of twist them, but their main argument is the resurrection. Their main argument is the resurrection. They try to say that Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday. That's a very important subject because right in the middle of the Days of Unleavened Bread, Christ was resurrected. And there was Sunday mentioned a great deal. In fact, is all four gospel accounts mention Sunday in conjunction with the resurrection. Now, some say, well, see, Jesus was showing that there's a new day to worship and so forth, but 
is this really a vague, groping attempt to somehow change the day of worship and get people to start to worship on Sunday? Or is there a more, is there a deeper meaning? You know, some only read that account just on the, on the surface and they draw some incorrect conclusions. And so there is something very, very special that went, uh, that took place on Sunday morning. And there's a reason it was Sunday morning, and it was mentioned Sunday morning. Because, you know, if you go through the Gospels, they are very, very careful to point out the things that Jesus fulfilled. For example, they explain that Jesus didn't have his legs broken. Now, there's a reason for that, because there was a prophecy that he would not have a bone broken. So they, they headed that rumor off at the mill. Because, you know, the word would get around, yeah, well, when Jesus got killed, you know, they broke their legs. And then pretty soon it would be easy to carry it over, and, well, Jesus had his legs broken. Therefore, he had bones broken. See, the disciples and the apostles and the writers of the New Testament were very, very careful to, to write out the things that Jesus fulfilled. They made sure you understood that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why? What, is that important? I mean, who cares? Bethlehem, Jerusalem, I mean, I don't care where he's born. Well, we do. Because... Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. We find that he would go into Egypt and be brought out. That wasn't an accident because the scripture said in Hosea, I have called my son out of Egypt. There are scriptures that talk about when he died, how he died, how he was pierced. They, they will look upon him whom they pierced. That's prophesied in, in Psalm. So the writers are careful to point out that he got, that he got pierced. There's another scripture that talks about, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands there in Isaiah. Then later you realize that he had his hands pierced. So everything is in detail. And as if, if the covenant has taught us one thing, it's taught us that every word is inspired. I mean, one word that you didn't even think about, you read it and you study it and you go, wow, that opens up other understanding. So there's got to be a reason why the writers of the New Testament pointed out very clearly, all four, they just didn't say, well, it was early in the morning Jesus appeared. They say the first day of the week, and they're very, very careful to point that out. So we're going to cover in the sermon this afternoon the truth about why Christ was there Sunday, why he was there in the garden Sunday, and then we're going to be able to tie it together to a very special part of these days that you and I keep, and there's the deeper meaning that we'll be able to go on to that many people just simply miss. <clears throat> the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, when was Jesus resurrected? Now, in order to get that, since we know that Christ said he'd be dead three days and three nights, we need to find out when Jesus died. So let's look over in Luke chapter 23 for a moment. You know, it's an important subject. Um, I remember one time I was hauling uh, wild horses out in uh, Nevada. My dad and I went down to an Indian reservation to pick up a load of wild horses, and we got down there, and it was uh, Sunday morning, and well, you know, what comes before Sunday morning, Saturday night, and <clears throat> on an Indian reservation, there's lots of adult beverages consumed on Saturday night. So the fellows that had the wild horses were sleeping off the adult beverages they had consumed Saturday night. So we had to wait for a few hours for them to show up to load these horses that we picked up. So I happened to, I just learned this information. My dad, of course, is not in the church. And so I asked him, I said, you know, dad, what do you think about, you know, Jesus said he'd be three days and three nights. And how do you get that, you know, Friday afternoon and Sunday morning? And he thought for a minute, he said, well, you know, he says, the best I can figure, you only missed it about a day and a half. <laughs> so what do you say to that, you know? <clears throat> There's not a lot you can say. Uh, <clears throat> so 
Luke 23, verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour, which is about 12 o'clock, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, which is three. And then during that time, it says, the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in the middle, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend, or, uh, commend my spirit, the spirit in man. Having said thus, he thus gave up the ghost or gave up the spirit. And so he died. You know, he, that's it. He's dead. So we're talking about around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a very important time because, remember, the Passover, put yourself in Jerusalem for a minute. You know, while you're taking your lamb in to be uh, looked at and to be actually killed and so forth and prepared, uh, while you're taking your lamb in, leading him to slaughter, if you will, this lamb, going the other direction goes this man who said he was a prophet who now is all beaten up, who has a crown of thorns on his head, bleeding, you know, carrying, a, you know, whatever, whether it was a stake or a cross or a cross beam, carrying this, going the other direction, being led to slaughter. And then right about 3 o'clock, when your little lamb would be killed, because uh, normally you kill them around sundown, but when they all killed them there at, at Jerusalem, you know, you can't, you can't kill that many, you know, that fast, so they would start early, and they would start around 3 o'clock or so. So about the time that they're starting to kill these lambs, Jesus Christ gives up the ghost, gives up the spirit, if you will, and he dies. So it's 3 o'clock. Now, if Christ is going to be dead three days and three nights, then we're going to have to find him resurrected about three days later. Now, that would put it in 31 AD, that would put the crucifixion and his death at Wednesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And you put three days and three nights later, you're talking Saturday afternoon around 3 o'clock. But then why in the world was he hanging around there Sunday morning? I mean, why, why was he still there? And there's another question. There's another problem. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. We also find another statement here when he gives a, a sign to the Pharisees. Pharisees were always asking for signs. They didn't want signs. You know, there were a lot of signs. I mean, there were enough signs that the centurion came and said, you can heal my servant. You ain't have to come to my house. Just say so. There were people that would come all over, and Christ knew that. He said, he said the Queen of Sheba is going to come and say, you know, going to condemn you, because she just heard about Solomon, and Solomon wasn't that great compared to the things that Christ did. She just heard about it, and she packed her bags and showed up, and she heard about it way over in another country. And here are you're right here. You see people like Lazarus and, you know, resurrected and all kinds of things, and you're not believing. So, you know, it wasn't that they needed a sign. And, of course, we read earlier that John the Baptist said, there is the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Son of God. So, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't listen. But anyway, they came and they were bugging him about a sign. So he gives some more information here, verse 38. Certain scribes and the Pharisees said, Master, <clears throat> which is kind of a funny thing to call Jesus because he certainly wasn't their master in their minds, we would see a sign from you. And he said, well, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There will be no sign given but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And, um, you know, he believes here Jesus uh, was under the illusion that Jonah was a real person. You know, you read some historical things and they say, oh, Jonah is just a figment of somebody's imagination. Well, Jesus says he's real. And he said, the prophet Jonah, verse 40, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, that's not dead. See, you've got two different things here. One is he'll be dead three days and three nights, and the other is he'll be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So <clears throat> now we, don't, we find Christ being resurrected Saturday afternoon, 
But when was he put in the grave? Well, he wasn't put in the grave until it was almost dark, almost sundown, that Wednesday evening, because it was starting the, what we call the night to be observed. And they had to get that done and get it all taken care of, and they weren't quite finished with Jesus, so they kind of wrapped him up and they left and they kept the high day, and then they went back and took the spices and, and more fully prepared his burial. So we've got him in the grave around dark, but he's dead at three, so we got two different things there. So what we find really is that he's dead three days and three nights, but he's buried three days and three nights. Now, this is true, and so he would be resurrected precisely when he died, which would be around three o'clock. But he would stay in the grave, what, another three, four hours until it was precisely three days and three nights from the time he was put in the grave. But then we find him coming out, and here he is. Why is he hanging around Sunday morning? Is it because he wants to show that Sunday is the day of the Lord? Let's look at John <clears throat> chapter 20. He's there Sunday morning because there's a very, very important part of the Days of Unleavened Bread that we have to understand. There's an important part because Jesus Christ, you know, you'd say, well, wait a minute, Christ is dead, he's, he's, he's died on the stake, so his blood has covered our sins, so now you're forgiven, so everything's cool. Wrong. You are not saved by the blood of Christ, according to the scriptures. You are not saved, and we'll get to that scripture shortly. So there's more to it. There's, there's more involved to it than just that. In John chapter 20, in verse 1, the first day of the week, comes Mary Magdalene early, and it was yet dark. So it wasn't a sunrise service. The scepter was empty. The stone was gone. Jesus was gone. So it's still dark. It's not getting light here. It is dark. So if it's early enough, I mean, it's dark. So Christ is gone. How long has he been gone? Well, if we say he was resurrected around sunrise, he was not in the grave three days and three nights. If you figure back to 31 AD, he was in the grave three days and three nights plus about eight hours. See, so we got some problems there, don't we? Why do they point out Sunday morning? So it goes on, and we find that, that uh, the different disciples looked for him, and they're all tearing around. But Mary stays around, verse 11. Mary stood outside the sepulcher and weeping, and she looked down inside. A couple of angels were there. And verse 13, they said, Woman, why are you weeping? It's an interesting terminology here. It's the same terminology that Jesus used with his mother. And uh, you'll find something very fascinating with the two Marys here. Uh, she said, well, because you've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And she turned around, and she sees Jesus, but she didn't know it was him. And this will also give you some insight into how Melchizedek could teach, how you can teach in the kingdom. You know, here is a spirit being, a God being, shows up, people don't recognize him, he can make himself, you know, known to them. Later on, he sees disciples, and they don't know it's him. He's walking along, and he, and he kind of walks up, and and he says, well, what are you guys doing? Where are you going? And they start talking about the crucifixion and everything. And so he goes with them. And then they, he talks to them about the scriptures. And pretty soon they say, wow, why don't you come have dinner with us? And he said, sure. So he stops in at their house. And, he ha and they, you know, he was a teacher. They, they, they said, man, we're learning all kinds of things. Would you ask the blessing on the meal? And while he's praying over the meal, you know, it clicks in their mind who this is. And then he's gone. He's, uh, you know, zaps away, which would be really fun. I'd love to do that. But... Uh, and then he shows up at other places and so forth and talks to them. 
So, and he eats food, he eats, you know, and uh, so you can, you can see how Melchizedek would be going with them, which is what he wanted to do, and teaching them and talking with them and walking among them, instead of some high priest that's going to only live till he dies and then you get his son, and he might not work out. So it's a lot better covenant that we have. Christ is alive and well, but he's not showing himself right now, not until the kingdom comes back, not until the kingdom. <clears throat> so, anyway... She doesn't know who he is, and so uh, uh, she thinks he's a gardener, verse 15. And she said, sir, if you've borne him from here, you know, uh, tell me where you take him, taking him, and I'll, I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, you know, he just said one word, Mary, but apparently the way he did it, the voice, she recognized. She, she knew it was him. She spun around and said, Rabboni, which means master. And she runs to him, which, of course, she would. But notice what it says in verse 17. Jesus said, touch me not for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So here is something, here, now we begin to learn why he is there. He, he's not ascended, but why not? I mean, hey, if I'm resurrected, even if it's Saturday night, I don't want to stay around. You know, what are you going to do Saturday night? You know, there's no heartland to go dancing or nothing, you know? I mean, what are you going to do? Why is he there? See, why didn't he go back to the Father? Well, there was something very important that had to happen. Anyway, he says... You go to my brethren. Now notice the new covenant. He says, touch me not. I have not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brethren, or you go to my brethren, and you tell them, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now Mary here is a type of the church, by the way. If you go back into Revelation 12, it talks about the man-child uh, being born of, of the woman. And then the woman is you know, taken. Well, you've got Mary who is a type of Israel, and Christ comes through Israel. But then later on, about halfway through the, the story, remember, the woman changes, doesn't it? Israel changes. And he says, the kingdom's taken from you and given to another nation. And so we find a point in time where some, uh, his mom, Mary, shows up along with the brothers, and they say, uh, why don't go in and get Jesus time to come out here? So they come in and they say, your mom and brothers are outside and they want you. And he said, who is my mom and who is my brothers? These are my, this is my mother. See, the church. And so you have this transition. So now we've got a woman who halfway through Christ's ministry is demon-possessed, seven, interesting, seven church areas, seven demons possessed, you know, an unclean prostitute, you know, the lowest of the low. And God calls her. She totally repents. God heals her of all uncleanness, forgives her. She she understands, she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair, and then at the resurrection, guess who's there? Mary. See, God worked it out to where both have the same name, Mary. You've got old Israel, and, and you've got the church. You've got this transition that takes place, and it's fascinating, especially if you follow the story on through. But the bottom line is, why is he there? Well, let's go back to Leviticus 23, back into the dreaded Old Testament with the Old Testament laws and so forth. Leviticus chapter 23, and we'll start to pick up this very special ceremony that was to take place. There was something very special to take place on that first day of the week. Now, if you understood the holy days, you would understand that this was going to happen, which tells me that the disciples, the writers of the New Testament, put this in there because the readers are supposed to understand the holy days. How can, I mean, what difference does it make about this first fruits and Sunday morning if you don't understand, you know, the holy days? 
So we get to chapter 23, and we find about the feast, and they're the feasts of the Lord, but they're also our feasts. Remember, God has given them to us. He's given us the Sabbath. Remember when Israel came out, Moses said, God has given you the Sabbath. Now some say, well, that's a gift. Now I can do what I want to with it, which is, uh, uh, doesn't make much sense to me. But the feasts are our feasts too, brother. You know, God's given them to us. So, you know, God's given us the Sabbath, given us the feasts, and they're feasts that are not of the Jews, but of all mankind because salvation is available to all mankind eventually. Now, the Sabbath wasn't made for Jews. It wasn't made for the church. It was made for man. It was made all the way back when man was, was created. So he lists these feasts, and in verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you will proclaim in their seasons. Now, they have to be in certain seasons because they picture certain time order. They picture certain, uh, a certain time order that everything will flow through. It's interesting, one of my friends in, um, in uh, Worldwide, who is a church pastor up north, I haven't talked to him since I resigned, but um, from what I understand, the uh, Holy Day service that we're having right now, they're not having it today, they're having it tonight at 7.30, you know, so that people, you know, I guess work, whatever, go to school, and then they can go to that. But you, if you think about that, 7.30 is past the Sabbath. It's not even on the same day anymore. You know, and so you cannot move things around. You can't move it to the eighth month. You know, I'd, in all honesty, I'd rather have the Feast of Tabernacles in August. You know, it's a lot easier for the kids. But that's not what God said. So you've so you got to do it when God said. You can't do it on the first day of the week, the fifth day of the week, the sixth month, the ninth month, whatever, just because it's convenient, you know. And remember uh, uh, the problem with the calves there in Israel? Well, it's too far for you to go up to Jerusalem to worship, and so they put a couple of calves down in Dan in Beersheba, and said, why don't you just come down here, or Bethel, I don't remember which one it was. So, you know, it's just because it's convenient, you can't do that. You have to follow the seasons. And again, you have been obedient in that, and so we don't always understand why. We don't understand, why can't we do it this way? But when you obey, the understanding follows. So he gives the seasons here, and he starts off with the Passover. But the Passover is where Christianity stops. They say, Jesus died, and that's it. You know, I mean, you're, you're saved but yet the scripture says that Christ's blood does not save you. There's more to it. There's more involved. Of course, if you don't have the holy days, then you're not going to see that. So they've got the Passover, then chapter, uh, verse 6, on the 15th day uh, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In seven days you uh, must eat unleavened bread. So uh, you put Christ in, which is symbolic of so many, many things that would come later. The first day you have a holy convocation, which is what we're doing, and then you have uh, on the seventh day, again, another holy convocation, and you don't work. But then verse 10, it says, Speaking to the children of Israel, say to them, When you come into the land that I give you. So this ritual would have to wait until they actually got into the land to do it. But it says, When you reap the harvest thereof, I want you to bring a sheaf or a handful of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, he's going to wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. Now, when does he do it? On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So what you have is when there's the Passover, the very next Sabbath, the next day after the Sabbath, they would go out and they would wave this wave sheaf. Now, the barley harvest is about to begin. So we find that all of a sudden harvest pictures salvation, that you're harvesting this, but before you can harvest, you have to have a first fruit. You have to have something that is acceptable for everything else. Much like if you have a business with a prototype, or if you're going to make, let's say you're going to make a million cookies, you know, but you'd probably want to make one or two first and taste them 
see if you got the recipe right, see if this flour is going to work, if this yeast is going to work, if, you know, can I, can I, I'm using different chocolate chips, you know, maybe, maybe these won't work out. You do prototype and you say, well, look, this tastes good. This is what I want. Now that we've got this, let's, let's follow this recipe. And if we do, all of this is okay. There's a prototype. There's something that goes ahead. So before all the harvest of mankind takes place, God shows that there has got to be something accepted. And once it's accepted, once it's waived and accepted, all that follows thereafter is acceptable as well. Doesn't matter which harvest it comes from, whether it's the first harvest or the last harvest. That's why Christ was slain for the sins of mankind, for all mankind, not just Israel, not just the church, but for everyone. So we've got this ritual that would take place during the days of unleavened bread. Now, during this time, you also have a lamb without blemish that's sacrificed. You've got some meat offerings and so forth, and they give the recipe of exactly how you're supposed to do it. And again, that was very important. But then it goes right into, and what we need to understand is, right now we're in days of unleavened bread. And yes, they go for another you know, week. But in the middle of that actually starts what we call Pentecost, because you start counting the days. You actually begin counting. What does Pentecost mean? So I don't, I, personally, I don't like the word Pentecost. I mean, I know it's in the New Testament, and I, you know, I'm not saying you should throw it out. I don't like it, and the reason I don't is because it hides the meaning. It's, it's convenient, count 50, and it's kind of terminology. Well, how do you get that? You know, oh, oh, what day are you going over there? Oh, you know, the, the day that we count 50. Well, in Greek, it means penti is 50, and cost is count. But it's really, what is the day? Feast of the first fruits. Feast of the first fruits. It actually begins during these days, does it not? The very first of the first fruits is offered during these days. Three days into, you know, in this particular year, and this year is exactly the, the way it was when Christ was crucified, by the way. You know, Tuesday evening, he had the, he had the uh, supper with the disciples, had the, uh, the symbols, the ceremonial eats and drinks. Then uh, Wednesday afternoon, he died. Uh, Thursday is today, would be the first day of unleavened bread. And then you've got Friday that the girls rested according to the commandment. Uh, and then they uh, went back and, and uh, or sorry, not Friday, you've got Thursday, they rested according to the commandment. Friday, they got the spices ready. And uh, then they rested according to the second Sabbath. And then uh, Sunday morning they showed up. And Sunday morning he was gone because he'd already been gone three days and three nights earlier. But in the middle of that day, you see, you can't have a Savior die for you and be justified by his blood and then wait 50 days for, for the opportunity to be reconciled and the opportunity to actually be saved, if you will. So what happens is, in the middle of these days, the first of the first fruits begins to be offered, is waved during this wave sheaf, and this goes right on into the Pentecost, right on into the Feast of the First Fruits, and says, now you start a countdown. Seven weekly Sabbaths go through, and then in the 50th day, the count 50. Now, there's a lot of parallels there. They go back into the Jubilee year, counting 50 years. There's all kinds of things that go, <clears throat> that go on. But you cannot begin to count 50 until you've waved that wave sheaf. And so actually, the whole ceremony of the first fruits begins after Christ is waved. It all starts through there. So they would start the barley harvest, and they couldn't begin it until they did that. 
And once they did that and did the wave, then you could start beginning. You could do it. But then when you finished it up, <clears throat> then you would have the, the day called Pentecost or the Feast of the First Fruits, which would celebrate that. So Christ is resurrected, and then Christ is presented, and then we go through this system where we are, uh, you know, the first fruits and so forth, and we'll be presented to God, and there's a lot more there, and I think there's a lot more about Pentecost that we're yet to learn as far as uh, being God's kingdom and, and how it deals with us, and which we'll try to get into at another time. But verse 16, it says, On the morrow after, uh, this, on the, morrow after the seventh Sabbath you will number... 50 days and offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And you'll bring out of your habitation two loaves, and many feel that this is ancient Israel and the church. You've got them both there. Uh, two tents, they'll be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. So you see, you've got a feast, you've got the first of the first fruits, and then you've got this whole period here, and then it culminates with what we call the Feast of the First Fruits, where you've got this, uh, and there's a waving takes place too. Notice verse 20. The priest will wave them with the bread of the first fruits, a wave offering before the Lord. And so this is waved as well, just like the other one. So you've got one, one individual that comes first, and then after that everyone begins to follow. So he starts the harvest, and he was acceptable for the harvest. Now there are, salva um, in the Bible, there's, Salvation is pictured by harvest. There's a harvest of the people. There are several different harvests. We know from the Feast of Tabernacles that the last great day is really when your big harvest comes because you've got all your you know, apples and oranges and, and everything from your uh, garden and so forth, which pictures the great, big, huge harvest. But it's interesting that we're reaped by the angels. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 31. <clears throat> we know that Christ then appears Sunday morning not to set up some new day, but to show that he is to be acceptable. He knows he's going to be acceptable. He goes to God on our behalf. He tells Mary, you go back to them and you tell them that I go to your God and my God. Now, after that takes place, we know that when God reaps the earth, that we're going to be reaped first, not the rest of the world. We're reaped first. We are the first fruits. So when we find, notice what it says in Matthew 24, at Christ's return, uh, verse 30 talks about the heavenly signs and so forth, and gathering together, and then verse 31, and he will send his angels. Now there are parables that talk about the angels reaping the earth with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. And again, you've got this, this symbolism here of the first fruits being waved in four different directions, the angels reaping them, gathering them in, gathering in the first fruits, and then you begin to reap the rest of the world as far as the wicked, they, they're reaped in, and, and, and you go from there. So there's this harvest picturing. And <clears throat> the, um, now, let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because we realize that by keeping these days, there's harvest uh, picture salvation, but the scripture says that there is an order, that each man has his own order. So Easter doesn't really teach us that. You know, if you go, Easter's got its pagan name written across the forehead, but what does Easter eggs and rabbits, and, and you can, you know, you can tie Christ into about anything. You can tie him into the Super Bowl game. 
you know, you could somehow go to the Super Bowl and say, you know, hey, I'm here honoring Christ because, you know, the winners and, and he who endures to the end and, and uh, you know, you get a bad call, you just hang on, you know, and, and uh, there's all, you know, the coaches like God the Father or the owners like the Father and the coaches like Jesus and, and you know, maybe, uh, maybe the quarterback is like, you know, Mr. Armstrong was and so, you know, hey, I think we should go to the Super Bowl. You know, so you can tie it together with about anything. So to say that to see the sun come up and say that's S-U-N, son of God, and tie it together with Malachi, boy, that's not too hard to do. It's not too hard to say, well, you've got little rabbits, you know, and rabbits are multiplying really quickly, and so you've got, you know, new life and Easter lilies coming up. It's easy to tie that together. But the problem is you lose all the other knowledge that goes with it. You see, when people that keep Easter, they don't realize that Jesus is the first fruits. They, they think he's about the quadzillion fruit, to be honest with you, because they think knowing those guys are in heaven. That Jesus got there, well, hi, I'm Jesus, I'm the first fruits, but I'm about the 50th one here, or the 150th one. You know, there's all kinds of confusion, see. So they don't really know. They don't understand then that there's another group of first fruits to follow. So they think, well, everybody's being saved right now. Now, that's really tragic. And, and so once you begin to lose sight of this, then you, then you have all kinds of questions come up. What do we do with the person that dies as the missionary is pulling into the Quonset hut there out in you know, Africa, and the person takes their last breath, and you run in there with your briefcase and your Bible, and you start to tell them about Jesus, and the guy expires. He goes to hell, and he burns forever and ever. See, once you lose sight of the holy days, you can come up with all kinds of ideas. So... There is a resurrection, but the holy days show us the order of resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> he talks about that Jesus did just what he was supposed to. Verse 3, I delivered unto you that first of all, what I've received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was seen by Peter and then the twelve, and after that he was seen by uh, more than 500 brethren at once. Now, also you have to realize he doesn't put every single detail there because he didn't mention Mary. He didn't say that Mary saw him. Well, we know Mary saw him. So he just, he's just kind of saying, you know, his idea here is not to list uh, an exhaustive list of who saw Jesus. His idea is, you bunch of dummies in Corinth, you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, Peter saw him, we saw him, there were 500 saw him. I wonder where the 500 saw him. You know, I'd like to know that. Did they have like a big potluck or something? I mean, really, I mean, how did it happen? It says 500 at once. Well, where, where did those 500 seem? Did they have a big party? Did they have a big resurrection party or something? I mean, it says there are 500 there. When did it happen? You know, when did they show up? I mean, do you ever think of that? You know, we, we don't know when this happened. There's a lot that Christ did during those 40 days. We just don't, simply don't know. But he did a lot of, a lot of things there. But <clears throat> they, were, uh, they were having some problems there, and some were saying, uh, verse 12, Now, if Christ be priest that he rose from the dead, how can there say some among you that there's no resurrection from the dead? So... You know, heresy's been around for a long time. But <clears throat> let's go to uh, verse 18. Uh, if there is no resurrection, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And if we're, uh, you know, if, if this is all we got in this life, we're pretty miserable, verse 19 says. But now, verse 20. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, the church in Corinth would understand some of these things because... Paul pointed out about leavening. He said, you got this guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. He's like leavening. You should put him out. 
He said, Christ, our sacrifice is slain for us. So here, here are the holy days. Paul's doing a pretty lousy job of getting rid of the holy days in the book of Corinth. So he points out about the Passover, points out about leavening, points out here about first fruits, the first of the first fruits, which is a direct tie back to the wave sheaf. Verse 21, since man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. But every man in his own order. Now that order is defined in the scripture. Christ the first fruits, which would be the um, uh, wave sheaf offering. So this is why he was the first of the first fruits. And then as soon as he's waved, then the rest of them you know, it, it opens the door, and then and it begins to show that there is another group. But there are also two loaves, probably before Christ's resurrection and, and after, because there are, there are groups in both, both, uh, both levels. And it takes the same amount of faith, and we've said that many times, to believe that Christ is going to be resurrected as it does that he was resurrected. Because there's nobody in here can prove he was. You can't go to history. Nobody's got a videotape. You know, nobody's got an audio record. We don't have any proof that Jesus Christ was resurrected. I mean, he's hardly even in the history books. You have to believe and have faith. In fact, if someone was telling me that the latest Newsweek magazine has about 10 or 12 pages in it, that the resurrection was basically a hoax, uh, they were, uh, what, hallucinating, I mean, all kinds of things. But see, you can't prove that. You look back on the resurrection and you believe that it happened. And then, just like those that before, looked ahead to a resurrection and believed it would happen. There's no difference there. It doesn't take more faith to look back than it does to look ahead. Same faith. Same faith that Hebrews 11 said Noah had. Noah had the faith, uh, the righteousness that comes by faith. And so, you know, it was there. But here's this time order here that he's explaining that Christ is risen, verse 20, from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Verse 22, as in Adam all men die, Christ all men are made alive. Now, that's a powerful, and I think we're going to get into a lot more understanding with the second Adam uh, shortly. But when you begin to look at this and realize that, uh, you know, all mankind are going to come back to life. They have no choice in that. You know, you, you don't die and say, I'd just soon not be resurrected. You have no choice. You know, whether you know about it or not, if you're, no matter where you live, when you die, you're, you're going to be resurrected. Just like you have no choice in dying the death that Adam caused us. So it says, as in Adam, everybody has to die. You've got no choice in that. As in Adam, as in Christ, all will be made alive. So you've got no choice in that either. See, then you're brought back up, and now Adam is there. Satan is gone. Adam, Adam, Jesus Christ. Adam has gotten rid of the snake. It's the eighth day, which is what circumcision pictures, the day when everybody's hearts are opened. Uh, the snake is gone. The tree of life is there. You have access back through Christ's shed blood. You're still not saved. You're just like Adam, though, uh, without sin because of Christ but you still are not saved, just like Adam wasn't saved. Adam was there without sin, but he had access to eternal life. See, there's still another part to all of this. And that's one of the reasons during the Days of Unleavened Bread that we put leaven out, not during the Days of Unleavened Bread. That's supposed to be out. You're busy during the days putting unleavened bread in, putting Christ in on a daily basis. So his shed blood, which already took place, see, Passover's first, that already took place. You're supposed to be unleavened. And so then the rest of the time you're putting Christ in. You're putting the bread in. And so this, is again, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming in, uh, uh, you know, uh, not living by just bread alone. 
So then we go on to verse 23, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now that's shown by Pentecost. Again, we go back to the Old Testament. We've got the two lows being waved, you know, to the north, south, east, and west. And what kicks it all off, this whole thing, see, Pentecost, you can't keep Pentecost unless you know when the wave sheaf is, unless you start counting from that time. That's why I say they're together. They're not separate. They're not, okay, days of unleavened bread, okay, we're all done with that. We got, uh, what is it, about 50 days, and then we're going to get together for baloney. It all ties together. It all ties together. Now, you can eat leavening during that seven weeks, but, you know, the thing is, is it's already started. It's already started. So it all ties in together. So you've got Christ, then those that are Christ at his coming. Verse 24, then we've got one more harvest. Then comes the end. Now, he doesn't explain a lot about that. And we already know that sometimes they explain a lot, sometimes they leave stuff out. Well, there's other places we can go. His purpose here is to explain that there is a resurrection, not to explain them all. Because if you don't believe there's a resurrection, why waste your breath? But here he's just showing that, look, there is a resurrection and there's an order. And he talks about the different order that there's Christ. And notice there's only three here. You know, I do not, we'll pause here, this is Steve Shepherd, chapter 1, verse 1. I do not believe that you'll be changed during the millennium. Because I, I think if you look at the great white throne judgment, it talks about people are resurrected to, to uh, good and evil. And I think what's going to happen is Christ is resurrected first, then those that are his at his coming are resurrected, then you start the millennium. Well, during the millennium, when you die, you know, you're still appointed unto men once to die. When you die, then you have the judgment at the end. You're resurrected and you're changed into eternal life. But part of those who are resurrected are resurrected to what the scripture calls judgment. And it means crisis whenever you have to make decisions. So why would you run around? I've heard ministers say, well, they'll, during the feast, they'll lay hands on you and say, well, we think you're ready to be, join God's family. Boy, I, I sure have never found that in the scripture. I don't know about you, but I can't find that anywhere. But I can find that it's appointed unto men once to die. I can find here the resurrection, the order, Christ, the first fruits, and then those. Then comes the end. It makes a lot of sense that during that time period, you die in the faith. You know, remember, we're, we're the special ones, I mean, and I mean that in a right way, in that we are, have the opportunity for that extra thousand years. We have the opportunity to be Christ at his return and be Eve and meet him and be there with him. And like Mary meeting him in the garden, see, look at the Adam and Eve. You've got Mary, who is the type of the second Eve, the church, you know, unclean, filthy, and yet Christ cleans her up makes her presentable, she is there faithful, she runs to him in the garden, interesting place, thinking he's a gardener, much like Adam, and, you know, together you can see, you know, the analogy there, that we are the second Eve. And so together, you know, we come from his rib, and there's only, only one person has ever come from a human being's rib, and that's Eve. And only one group of people will be in the first resurrection, and that's the church. Now, after that, there's another order. You don't go back and do other orders and mix them around. There's an order. Christ, Adam, nobody was made like Adam. Adam came from the dirt of the ground. Nobody was made like Christ because Christ is the Word. The Word was made flesh. Nobody else has been made flesh from Spirit. So Christ is first. Then we've got Eve. Nobody else came from a rib, but Eve did. Nobody else will be in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that's in the first resurrection. On him the second death has no power. So now we've got a thousand years of ruling and reigning with Christ as we enter into the rest together. 
and mankind begins to, to learn and so forth, and we begin to teach. So we run to our E or our Adam, and we yield to him, we listen to him, and so forth. And this is part of what these days are <clears throat> are all about. So we've got this resurrection taking place. So um, let's go over to Colossians chapter three. Christ was the first fruit, but there's something else here that the wave sheaf points out. Colossians chapter 3, not only that Christ is the first fruit, and God, God ordained a long time ago what day he'd be accepted on. And it's interesting to read through, by the way. Um, let's see, it's Revelation 3, no, sorry, Revelation 4 and 5, and also back in Daniel about, it's either 7 or 9. And, um, and you'll see when Christ is presented to the Father. He goes before the Ancient of Days, and they say, who can open the scroll? And they all weep because nobody can open it. And then they say, ah, the, the lion tribe of Judah you know, is worthy, the lamb. And then this lamb comes forward that's been slain. And then this lamb, you know, this very picturesque type thing, you know, this, this walking lamb goes over and takes this scroll out of the hand of the one that sits on the throne and opens it up and reads it. And so you begin to see the, um, uh, you know, all, all, all how all of this ties together. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, though, we, uh, we begin to find out that not only is Christ the wave sheaf, but remember the important part of the wave sheaf was that when he looked at the, at the, the handful of grain, you know, he, he didn't say, okay, start harvesting and bring every piece of grain by, you know, the quality control table. You know, there's four or five priests and then, and then you bring it all by and we check everything. We only check the first one. He says, you bring the wave sheaf and if it's okay, then the rest is okay. See, the prototype's okay, and for that sake, we accept the rest. The Lord accepts the rest of the harvest. See, the prototype's okay, and for that sake, we accept the rest. The Lord accepts the rest of the harvest, and then it culminates at the end of the 50 days when you have the two loaves. See, when the two loaves are raised up, if you will, raised, to, uh, to the Lord. So we've got Colossians. Now notice verse 1, uh, Colossians 3. If you are then risen with Christ, and again referring back to the ceremonial washing we call baptism, when you go underneath the water and you come up with Christ as far as resurrection, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above and not on the things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you will appear with him in glory. And so Christ is our life now. So now it's, it's like this is good enough. Here is the one that was accepted. So it's not, you know, it's by his shed blood that we are reconciled to God. Look at Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> You know, all of these things are lost. All of them. You, you just simply lose it. Romans chapter 5. Verse 
Verse 1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice we don't have peace to the Holy Spirit, because see, it's not a being. It's, it's whereby we do these things. So you've been justified. We have peace. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, whereby we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. <clears throat> Verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man one die, but uh, you know sometimes people die for good people. Verse 8, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life? By his life. So you, you're saved when you're brought out of Egypt, you're saved by this dead lamb. But guess what? You're going to starve to death when you get out in the desert. God already, God already worked that out. You know what? When you leave Egypt, you don't have any bread. You don't have any yeast. you got no starter with you. Remember what he said? He said, you, you leave the yeast, you leave all of that. So when Israel left Egypt, they brought no starter, they brought no yeast, they brought no bread. And they're going out there, and God then, by the bread coming down from heaven, He fed them. He began to prepare a table in the wilderness. Now, His goal wasn't to feed them bread the rest of their life. But the goal was that bread, Jesus later said, no, that, that really wasn't the real bread. That was just a symbol. He said, I'm the real bread. And so he starts to make the connection, but a lot of people couldn't get it. I said, what, what do you mean bread? And he said, well, you're not here because you saw, you know, because you're obeying me. He said, you're here because I gave you bread. But he said, Moses, you know, I'm the real bread. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And boy, it started really boggling their mind. They said, what are you talking about? They couldn't make the transition to the next level of, of the uh, spiritual intent. So it is by Christ's life that we're saved, not by His death. So His death just justifies you. That just simply allows you back in the Garden of Eden without sin. But see, do you still have, do you have eternal life? Well, of course not. But there is the tree of life. You now have access by, through Christ and you get to stay there by obeying God, by staying with your husband, as the snake begins to seduce you, like Paul talks about, the, the uh, Satan seducing Eve, as, as this world seduces you, what do you do? Do you take on the snake yourself? Or do you run, find your husband, and be hid in Christ, and look to him, and then let him fight the battles for you? We've talked about that before. Let him fight the battles. So, <clears throat> let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Late night for all of you. I see everybody's going, oh. I, I actually, I ran off the road twice coming here. I finally pulled over. That's why I was late. I just, I was afraid I was going to crash and burn. I just, I stopped and I slept for about 10 minutes and came on in because I just. So, I got to sleep. Now it's your turn. <laughs> but I. I don't need that, you know, <clears throat> because I really don't need this. I'm, uh, I achieved perfection yesterday. I wanted to let you know. I, uh, the kingdom can come now, and uh, no problem. I, uh, 
been getting up early and working a lot of hours, so I snuck off and I, I took two hours and I went to the golf course yesterday. And so I was there at the golf course and I running around playing. You know, it's a beautiful day. And I went to the 13th hole, teed up the ball, took out a nine iron, and hit my first hole in one. So that's it. Achieved perfection. Uh, kingdom can come. I'm, I'm ready to go. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, you know, in other words, physical things that somebody built, that are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now appearing in the presence of God for us. So, you know, the figures of true were important because God told Moses, said, now look, you make them just exactly like I tell you because they represent something. And so it's very important that you do that. And he was very meticulous. You know, this is how you make the suits and you weave the thread this way and it's this color. When you mixed up the anointing oil, it was a, it was a, a recipe that you did never use for anything else. You mixed up anointing oil, and that was it. You were not allowed to use that fragrance and that smell and that mix for anything else. Why? Well, magic? No, but because it pictured the Holy Spirit. Imagine if you could just anoint with, with oil that you polish your boots with, you know. Here's some cooking oil, and, you know, hey, I've got a little there that I polished my boots. i got some left over that I've oiled my boots and my saddle with. We're going to now anoint the next high priest. We'll just bring that bucket out and pour it. You can't do that because it pictures the Holy Spirit, see. So these things were all uh, uh, patterns that, uh, that they needed to follow. But now Christ, as the wave sheep, wave sheep, actually appears for us. So he goes in, and he's the one that God looks at. So by us staying in him, by us working with him, as us being in him, then that is what is, is approved. That is what is accepted, not, not us any longer. reminds me of co-signing a note, uh, if you've ever... Uh, co-signed, you go into a bank and to borrow money, and the banker says, well, do you, have any, do you have any credit? Well, I don't really have any credit, or I don't have good credit, or whatever. Then he says, well, you need a co-signer. So what you do is you get someone else, and they actually sign the note with you, and then their credit becomes your credit. They don't look at your credit anymore. They look at their credit, because they know that if you can't pay the bill, this other guy, they'll, go, they'll get it from him. So his financial statements become your financial statements. His net worth becomes your net worth. His bank account becomes basically your bank account in the banker's eyes. Because the banker looks at it and says, well, I know you can't pay it, but you know Joe Schmo here can, so we'll go ahead and loan you the money. So in that case, Christ is our co-signer. And God looks at him. So the wave sheaf, he looks at him and he says, that is acceptable to me. Therefore, we get to go right in with him. It's kind of like having a pass. You know, yeah, yeah see your ID, go right on in. Hey, I'm with him. That's fine. You know, I'm with them. I get to go in too. And this is part of like marriage, you know, being at one, the two shall be one, and at one with Christ. Those that are joined to the Lord, the Scripture said, are one spirit. So the co-signing, if you will, uh, his credit becomes yours. He covers your loan. You're treated a lot differently. All of a sudden you're treated like him rather than like yourself. So God looks at us in a, in a different light. Look at Luke chapter 10. We read a, a story about a co-signer. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And the fellow falls in among thieves and he gets beat up and he doesn't have any money. And, uh, you know, the priest and the Levite walk on by, which again is a, shows about the covenant there, that they, they were keepers of the covenant and certainly didn't get the drift. But along comes the Samaritan 
that did, and uh, helps him out. Verse 34, he went, uh, uh, the Samaritan went to him and he bound up his wounds and he poured oil and wine. So he picked out a couple of things. One pictures the Holy Spirit, one pictures forgiveness. Oil and wine, he set him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he left, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and he said, take care of him and whatever you spend more, I'll come again and I will repay. So it didn't matter who this guy was. He could have been the biggest creep in the world. He could have been as broke as the day is long. But it was the Samaritan that it was put on his account. He said, if you spend more money, you, you just put it on my account. I will take care of it. This is what Christ does for us. Father, I will take care of it. Put it on my account. So the binding up and the healing that takes place here is symbolic. And all of this is pictured in the wave sheaf offering. It's not just some deal, you know, harvest, grab some grass and wave it and throw it down and start harvesting. There's symbolism there because remember, what God is after is not a harvest. He's after harvesting people. So the sim symbolism there is that Christ would be resurrected, that the lamb would die, but he would come back. And when he comes back, all mankind will be saved through his life. The death just simply reconciles does not save, gets us back there. So <clears throat> we, find, we find that. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 10. Now, one of the things that we graduate to during this time period is another level of righteousness. Many people do not know that the Bible speaks about two righteousnesses. There are two, there are two in the Bible. There's not just one, there's two. And they're both righteous. Now one's better than the other, but there are two righteousnesses. Now, <clears throat> what happens is, there is a righteousness of the law. Romans chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 3, well let's read verse 2, talking about Israel. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they go about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. So there's a, there's a righteousness that you actually do, and there's one that you actually submit to in faith. One you do, one you do not, one you have faith with. Now you kind of have to have faith in the other as well, they sort of tie together. But... We'll come back here, but look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, because we'll find something here that God told Israel. And this is really where the Pharisees got into trouble. You know, the law isn't always good. So, oh, yeah, well, no, the law is good. Law is good, holy, yes, it is. But you know, you can use the law in an incorrect manner. Because James said the law is good if, so if somebody says if, that means it's not always good. You know, cookies are good if, well, that, that doesn't mean they're always good, does it? It means they're if, and then whatever follows afterward is some sort of a, a, of a modifier, if you cook them right, or if you put chocolate chip with walnuts and stuff like that in them, you know, if. So, the law is good, James said, if a man use it lawfully. How could you use it not lawfully? Well, there's a lot of ways. You could take the law like the Sabbath and say, you get out of here, you were healed on the Sabbath. You know, this is, we got the Sabbath here. The law says, thou shalt not work, so you just pack your bags and get out. How dare you come here and be healed on the Sabbath? That's using the law unlawfully. That's not what the law was intended to do. You can also use the law unlawfully in trying to use it to forgive sins. Say, oh, well, hey, I'm keeping the law, 
So I'm, you know, you need to forgive me. Well, no, that that doesn't forgive you. If you keep the if you keep the speed limit, what if you've already broken it? Yeah, I broke the speed limit. I got a ticket. Here's the, but I've kept it ever since then. So forgive the ticket. Sorry. Keeping the speed limit now is good, but that's not going to go back and forgive it. See, that's the law is used lawfully. Now, what happened with ancient Israel? Remember, they are a ragtag group of people that fall down and worship idols. You go through Leviticus 18 and see some of their sexual practices. You look at some of the uncleanness that they had. You look at some of the lack of understanding that they had. It's amazing. So here is a very unrighteous group of people. God brings out and he gives them the law to make them righteous. The first level. The first level. Look what he tells them here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1, these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments. The Lord commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land where you go. That you might fear the Lord your God to keep, see, to do something, to keep the statutes and the commandments I command you, not only you, but your son and your son's son, all the days of your life that your days might be uh, fulfilled and go well and so forth. Now, look at verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive, as it is to this day. And it, see the doing of these statutes and judgments and obedience, and it shall be our righteousness, if, conditional, we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he's commanded. Now that's not wrong, that's not bad, that's good. So you take slaves and all of a sudden you give them a group of laws that define what is right. Now, you, you know, humans don't know what's right. If you, just, if you put them in a cage and fed them and never taught them a thing, and they grew up to be 25 years old and they were in a cage and all they, ever, you know, they never saw another human and you just kind of fed them through a tube and cleaned the cage. Um, after 25 years, what would they know? Would they know right from wrong? No way. They wouldn't know right from wrong. They wouldn't know anything. They wouldn't know how to speak. They wouldn't know anything. They wouldn't know any kind of dietary habits. They wouldn't know health habits. They wouldn't know anything. You have to be taught. So you take a group of people and you give them a law that says, now you think that when somebody does this to you, you should do this. But my law says here. See, so God takes his law and he says, this is the proper righteous response. So he says, he sets forth his laws, his statutes, and his judgments. Now, by keeping those, guess what? You are righteous. Your actions are righteous. You are doing righteousness. Now, it's just one level. But it's kind of like the tree of life here. You don't get to the next level if you don't do at least the letter. If you're not at least righteous according to the law, how are you ever going to learn about the righteousness that comes next? You can't ever make it that far. So he said, if you do these things, you will be righteous. It will be your righteousness. Now that's good, but I can tell you about somebody that kept the law in a, in a, in a wrong manner and paid the price for it. He understood the righteousness of the law, but he did not understand the righteousness that comes by faith. Not for a while. His name was Job. So Job did everything right. And he went along, he said, boy, I'm doing the sacrifices, I'm doing this with my kids, I'm doing that with his so-and-so, and he, and he follows right down the line. And so he looks at his life, and rightly so, and says, I'm a righteous man. Scripture calls him, says he's upright, blameless, out of all the men on the earth. I mean, he was, he was like the top three. What is it, Job, uh, Daniel, and Noah, I think. 
Righteous man. Good. <laughs> Wonderful. But then notice what happened. When God began to work with him, and Satan actually caused some things, God allowed it, he began to look at his life and he said, now wait a minute, why did this happen to me? I did this right. I am righteous according to the law. So why did this happen? I don't know why it happened. Hmm. Now if I did what's right, and I've examined myself, and I've done exactly what's right, and this has happened, and God's allowed it to happen, you know what? If one of us is wrong, it's got to be God. That's exactly what Job said. It's got to be God. So he actually argued with God. In fact, is remember one time he said, I wish there was some judge that could come down. You know, I'm having a hard time with God. I wish there was a judge that would come down and sit there and judge between me and God because God's not being fair. So he began, the, the righteousness of the law actually began to be used in a wrong manner to where he was ignorant of God's righteousness. And where's the faith involved? See? So he went through this terrible trial. Then later on, he began to realize, wait a minute, there's a lot more to this. And he said, he put his hand over his mouth and he said, now I see God. And now I realize that, you know, even my righteousness, even all this doing, you know, is nothing. Because God's, first of all, God's the one that taught it to me, so I didn't dream it up. Second of all, I'm really weak and I can't do it half the time. So you begin to learn that, that man's righteousness isn't quite good enough, but it's better than not having it. If we could go into the inner city and be armed with the law of God and teach people to be righteous according to the law, this nation would be a hundred times better off. But that's not where you would stop. That's not where you would finish up. Now, let's go back to uh, Romans and see the problem that the Israelites ran into. Because how this ties in with the wave sheaf is that Christ's righteousness becomes ours. And he begins to reveal to us another level of righteousness. Now, it's not new in the New Testament. It's the same one that Noah knew about, the righteousness that comes by faith, which it talks about that he had. Verse 3, They, Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. So they have the law, and it's, you know, it's real convenient because if you got the law, and that's what makes you righteous, and then all of a sudden God comes along and says, well, you really need to obey me. If you hang on to the law, you get to be God. You, you get to be the one that's, you know, I don't need to listen to you. I just do this over here, and I'm righteous. Why do I need to yield to you? And so that's why the Scripture says they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Christ. Because, see, the danger with the law is you can interpret it any way you want to. You can all of a sudden take the law and, and use it as a club, use it as a way to beat people up, use it as a way to make yourself righteous. Just like people have done here lately, they've gone the other direction. They've taken Jesus by himself and make him say anything they want to. That's why you've got to take Jesus and the law and put them together. And when you take Christ and Christ's life and the law and put them together, then you get something that makes sense. If you take only Jesus and throw out the law, then you make Jesus say anything you want. You can say, see, he was here Sunday morning, see? You know, and, and oh, okay. Or you can throw Jesus out and just take the law, and then you can, uh, again, make it say or do anything you want to. So they have to go together. So they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Back up a few verses, verse 31 of chapter 9, Israel followed after the law of righteousness. Well, that's good. But it says, but they haven't attained the law of righteousness. Well, how come? Verse 32, wherefore? Well, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were the works of the law. So when the, when the Messiah comes and starts telling them and working with them and saying, teaching them like Melchizedek would, 
They said, no, I don't need you. I got the law. Well, it's real convenient because, see, you can make the law say what you wanted. So I don't need you. I'm right. Now you've used the law in a wrong manner. So the wave sheaf shows that your righteousness is it's good. It's good to have be righteous according to the law. It's good not to break God's laws. But you know you might not be breaking them because you're afraid of the penalty, which, which means you love yourself. And that's good. That's better than not. But see, you have to get ready to move on to the next level. And the wave sheaf shows us that it's Christ's righteousness that is accepted for us. Not that we don't do things too. Not that now that we're back in the garden, we don't run over and take the tree and just do what we want to do. We have to obey as well. So, <clears throat> verse 32, it says, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Look at Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> and Paul mentions here in Philippians 3 about the, uh, the faith of Christ which, by the way, is mentioned all the way back in Deuteronomy, that it's near unto you even in your mouth that you may do it. Got my old King James Bible. I can't hardly find anything in it anymore. Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about the things that he's gone through, and he talks about being righteous according to the law, all the different things that he had done. And then, verse 9, he says, uh, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. Now, we need to stop there. Is that bad? What about if teenagers are righteous according to the law? Well, guess what? They won't get pregnant. They won't do drugs. They won't lie to their parents to honor their father and mother. Uh, what else? You know, they won't have uh, idols. Uh, they won't be coveting. They'll be working on that. Uh, won't murder, won't steal. You know, it'd be pretty nice, wouldn't it? Be righteous according to the law. So that's good. But you see, Paul was that way, but then pretty soon he carried over and all of a sudden the righteousness of the law actually ended up hurting him because he began to persecute other people. So he moved and he took the law from using it lawfully to being using it unlawfully. So he says, yeah, I was righteous according to the law, but he says, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Now, that faith of Christ can be in Christ's sacrifice that has happened, in which case it is for us, or it can be in the sacrifice of Christ that will happen, which would be in the case of those in the Old Testament looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. That's how Noah had the faith that, uh, righteousness that comes by faith. So, <clears throat> he said, I don't want to have my own righteousness, which is of the law, but I want to have the righteousness that... Uh, well, like Christ said, that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, now let's go back to Hebrews and just finish up a couple of scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11. It's a very important day because, and I hope you can see that the wave sheaf kicks off the, the holy day season for you. I mean, it's all together. It's all together that once the Passover begins that the days of unleavened bread, right in the middle of it is the resurrection and beginning of the first fruits, and it carries right on through for seven Sabbaths, you know, culminating in the, in the, the final one of, of uh, the 50. And then, then everything kind of stops until trumpets. And you've got sort of this, this you know, big gap there of a couple thousand years, and then Christ's return. And then we start all over again. We start with trumpets and all of the things that are, that are involved there. 
But Hebrews 11, notice verse 1, he, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So if you're going to have faith, it's going to be in things you can't see. Well, lots of people had faith. Verse 2, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand the world's framed by the word of God. So things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. You know, and Einstein, and you go through some of the theories of um, uh, relativity. You go through the theories of, and you start tracing back the Big Bang, and they finally they kind of come up against the wall, and they say, well, we were able to trace the laws of nature backward, but then we get to this wall where you've got stuff that we can see made out of stuff we can't see. Well, you know, <laughs> we got to have faith. We understand that, that that had to happen. Well, that's not the only faith. Verse 4, Abel had faith. And verse 5, Enoch had faith. And verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of things... Uh, not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark. So he did something with the faith, and he saved his house. So that was good. By which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. So it was always back in there. It's not just since Christ. It was all the way back in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so And it was promised, and even Israel was told in Jeremiah 23, 5, that the Lord should be our righteousness. So there's a, there's a process, there's a step that we go through. So I hope we can see that the kingdom, uh, you know, that we, we are to have a faith that, or a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and Easter hides it, Sunday morning hides it, that it's a very important day, that it points out to Christ's resurrection, but more, you know, all tied in together with that, it points to us putting Christ in, us uh, eating that unleavened bread, living off of that, and looking forward to the time of a resurrection our resurrection, when those uh, loaves are waved and, and we have that opportunity then to join Him. And that's going to be certainly a wonderful time. So it pictures all the different harvests. And I, I'll tell you, it's really sad as you begin to see different ones turn loose of these things because it won't be long and you just simply will not understand the harvest. You'll not understand the order, the time frame. Uh, and then, you know, think about when you learn the truth, how when you learn one part of the truth, you know, for me, when I learned about the resurrection, and pretty soon I said, well, wow, if that's true, then what about hell? And so you say, oh, well, then you have to study that. And then pretty soon when you're done with that, you go, well, well, what about heaven? Well, then you realize that. And then you start saying, well, what about the mortal soul? Where'd that come from? And then, then you can't stop there. And then pretty soon, well, is all mankind saved? What about, well, no. And then you explain that. And then pretty soon you're over here in another area. Well, the reverse is true. When you start turning loose of one thing, you say, well, the Sabbath isn't in effect anymore. Then you have to say, well, if that's true, then the domino knocks over the holy days. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, it does. Then pretty soon they accept that, and then you say, well, if the Sabbath and the holy days are gone, then what are we going to do about this? Pretty soon you're back to where you started, in confusion, which is what Babylon means. You're right back into Babylon confusion, not knowing what's going on, to the point in time that you can be a minister in the church of God and a year and a half later, be talking about going to Easter sunrise services. Now, I don't think that can't happen to people. You know, I read the book of Judges now in a totally different light. You know, I used to read that and say, what a bunch of morons. You know, God delivers them, and 40 years later, they've left it all. You know, now I go 40 years, we're talking not even 40 months. 40 months. You know, it's a sad situation. So it's a wonderful day that we have coming up, and I hope that you'll think about it, you know, Sunday morning. And again, it's, it is Sunday morning, you know, and does that mean Sunday morning is holy or what? No, it's just the wave sheaf. 
and it comes right back through for the 50 days and culminates with, with our, our day, the Feast of the First Fruits, everybody in their own order. So I hope that you have a wonderful uh, Days of Unleavened Bread and uh, we'll not be here next this Sabbath, but uh, we'll see you uh, the last day of Unleavened Bread. We'll have services here at, uh, what, 10, did we say 10, 10 o'clock? Yeah, 10 and uh, ten and 3 probably, because it's the hour difference. I'll have to figure that out. I have to, services are way up the other side, upside of Kalamazoo and then down here, so it takes a little bit longer, especially when you sleep on the way. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully I'll be on time next time.